Many of you have probably already had family gatherings. How many of you have already had a family gathering for Christmas this year? Got together with family? Yeah, a few of you. How many of you are going to have one uh, like tomorrow maybe or even today maybe? Today? Yeah, a few of you today. Um, And then, of course, next week we'll have that as well. So this is definitely the time, the time of the year that we get together with family and and, uh, to celebrate. And we've been kind of talking and deconstructing a little bit about what the season's about. And I know that's kind of the cliche thing, well, it's about Jesus, and I get that. But I think that some of the stuff that we kind of push in there, we make assumptions about what Christmas is truly about. And so I just want to talk about that from Scripture today a little bit. How many of you have ever had a family portrait done? Whether it's with your children, with your grandchildren, with your parents, with your siblings. Yeah, almost everyone. You haven't? Have you had one done? Did you raise your hand, Kramer? Okay, all right. You just weren't participating. That's cool. So almost everyone has had family portraits done. And this time of the year especially, I think, we are prone um, to desiring that perfect family. Does anybody have, you know, like identify with that? Like, you know, the, the gathers come up, you, you want it to be perfect. And I actually think this is something that we believe in year-round. I had some family portraits that might look familiar to you. Maybe, maybe not. But I want to show them the perfect family portrait. Like, Look at these folks. I just want to share that. I don't know who these people are, actually. I think they're actors, right? They've got to be actors. Look at them. Come on. Now, I know some artists who take great photographs of people who, you know, so there really are some good family portraits, but come on. It's, 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 it's adorable. Here's another one. A beautiful family. Perfect. Look how happy Dad is. He couldn't be happier. That's so cool. Here's another one having a great time. I mean, this is what we want, right? This is what we aspire to have. And then, <laughs> this one cracks me up because I don't know what they're looking at. <laughs> but they're all excited about something that's just off camera. <laughs> look at Grandpa. <laughs> Cracking me up. It's just, look how, oh. And you, you know what's funny is this stuff is everywhere. If you don't notice it, you should start paying attention because we're constantly told what a perfect family looks like. And this is part of what kind of is pressed into, by the way, this is a Google search. That's all I did. Perfect family photos. Oh yeah, couldn't leave out the family selfie, which is the new thing to do to get the perfect shot. Can we just take a minute and see how awesome that beach looks right now, by the way? Uh, we heard that uh, Kristen is somewhere in the tropics right now. We're like, really? Great timing for her. But uh, yeah, that's awesome. So that, that's many of us, many of us aspire to have those kind of things. As a matter of fact, sometimes maybe you have that experience where, you know, someone says, it's time for the family picture and you got to like stand up straight, act right, clean up, shave, right? I mean, do some things uh, to get yourself ready for this all-important moment that will be forever frozen in time, the family portrait. But of course, most of us don't have those perfect family experiences, right? So I want to share a few other family portraits. Um, I don't know what you call maybe awkward family photos or more real life, right? So I have a few of these I want to share with you as well this morning. So <laughs> here's the topless dad photo. That's a great one on Christmas morning. Yeah, send that to your, your family as the postcard. He's not even worried about it. Look, he's like, this is me. That's fine. What, get dressed? <laughs> Two very excited parents, and the kid's like, ah, just look at the poor kid. He's like, what's happening? We're surrounding you with love. A couple more here. Let's see. Here we go. <laughs> Wait, I don't know if you guys can see all the goodness in this photo. Dad's sporting some shorts. (laughs) He he don't even have pants on. He's like, I'm not getting dressed for this photo shoot. Of course, the brothers, strangling the other brother and sister, just can't stand either one of them. Look at that awesome, awesome photo. 
Yeah, and there's dad choking the kids. That one's kind of fun. That's, that's always cool to do that on purpose. Life's kind of like that sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. You, this one's kind of hard to see too, but this is maybe more a nod to my, look at this like punk rock kid right in the middle. He's like, I am not going to do this Easter picture. There you go. We've seen that family portrait. <laughs> Hold your sister. Ah! Look, even the kids learning. This is what we do. Scream about it. Oh, this one's terrible. <laughs> we shouldn't laugh. I don't even know what happened after this, but mom, dad's still having a good time. He doesn't know what's going on, but mom is like, this is going all wrong right now. No, I've seen this in a magazine. I saw it on Pinterest. We can do this picture on the beach. Uh, and that's usually more of like what our family portraits end up looking like and not like those perfectly airbrushed photos that we all see. I don't know if, if you have that. Matter of fact, this is even crazy, but, and I talked to my wife about it a little bit. We got a postcard in the mail. I don't know if you do this, but whenever I visit churches, I always fill out the visitor information cards and stuff just to see how that works and what happens. And I got a postcard from a pastor in another church. It, 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 the postcard, the family is so perfect on the postcard. And I showed Chris, I go, look at this. And she's like, oh, that's awesome. I'm like, do you think that's real? Like, I'm not, maybe it's real, but I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's so perfect. Everyone's, it's like a J.C. Penney, not even a thing anymore, catalog. It's like a, you know, I don't think cool would be a, a Old Navy. I don't know, anyway, you know, like everyone's just a little too happy to be there and they're all kind of looking up. And I was like, man, you know, we all, pastors, everyone, we buy in, push this image. It's perfect, it's perfect, it's perfect. And the question that I have, is this really the season for perfect families? Is, is that the truth of what this season is about? And we're going to talk about both sides of this a little bit, you know, because we do aspire to have good, God-honoring, blessed, obedient, faithful, loving, caring, merciful families, right? We do desire that, but this Biblical text is so much richer than many of us would allow and we even maybe want to be part of. So, and, and I'll say this too. The reason I want to talk about it is this. Every time we create a false idol of something, we exclude others and sometimes ourselves from truly worshiping Jesus. Like there are people who believe they can't participate in the celebration of Christmas because their lives or their families aren't perfect. And so I want to talk about that today from Scripture a little bit. So we're going to do what we did um, last week. We're actually going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. We talked about this a little bit last week. So if you want to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, we're not going to cover all the whole first two chapters. I just didn't want to list all the places we're going to stop. So we're going to talk again uh, today. We're going to actually start with Matthew 1.18. So if you're going to open a Bible up and turn to Matthew 1.18, we're going to start there and just chat about this reality of maybe what you call the first family of Christmas. Okay? So we're just going to look at that biblically and see what, because, you know, if anything, we say what, that, that Jesus is the model for our lives. That he should be what we aspire to become or to be like. And so we want to talk about the reality of his own family. And the first thing we want to do is we'll talk, we did this last week a little bit about um, all these emotions or, you know, how, what we celebrate, our feelings of the season, happiness. Today we're going to talk a little bit now about the reality of their lives. And so, Matthew 1, 18, just two verses. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, 
he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And I know last week we talked quite a bit about this text, about all the um, emotions they must have experienced besides happiness as the first family of Christmas. The, the communal, you know, pressure on them and the uh, embarrassment of being um, an, a wed mother uh, with an unplanned pregnancy. Like, I just want to stop a minute again and, and think about that, and then we're going to talk about the family dynamic at play here a little bit. It, it, it should strike us that Jesus came in, into the world um, into a woman who was pledged to be married and yet not married, um, who was a virgin, right? And into a, a household where his parents still had options, right? And you hear it, heard it here, we talked about it last week, Joseph did not want to publicly disgrace her, but wanted to divorce her quietly. So I want to backpedal a little bit because I actually, this week while I was preparing for this, this conversation about family, um, there was an article in Christianity Today that, that was written by someone who really researched the culture of the time. And they said, oh, one of the things that we do with the Christmas narrative in our desire to be inclusive of others is to make it, you know, I, actually this idea of Mary being a pregnant, unwed teenager. She was a young woman, pledged to be married, right? You're, you're pledged to be married pretty young. And this person did the research kind of talked about the reality for that culture that it maybe wasn't that much of a public disgrace to be pregnant before you were married. Now maybe you're like, what? Wait a minute, that doesn't add up. But here's the, here's the understanding that would happen in that relationship. Um, Joseph had promised to marry her. That's a fact. And you didn't, you didn't change your mind whenever you were going to marry a woman. You had pledged to marry her. You were going to marry her. And so many times in that culture, when you had pledged to be married to someone, they might get pregnant in the community before they actually had the, ma- the ceremony. They had, had, I told you last week, they had a ceremony where they were pledged to be married, right, recognized by the community as husband's wife. As a matter of fact, um, in here it's going to say uh, the, whose husband was Joseph, right? Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. So, I mean, there's this implication and it's not like it is today, where you're just dating someone. You've made a commitment, and the expectation is that you will follow through with it. And, and the reason I want to talk about that just for a minute and kind of decompress it is because this is what happens then. If you're pledged to be married to someone, and they've been unfaithful, that's grounds for divorce. And as a matter of fact, if you're an adulterer in their culture, there's a punishment for adultery. Does anyone know what it is? It's to be stoned to death, to be stoned to death. And so now you have a, a young woman who's pregnant in her betrothed relationship, marital relationship, not yet married, but getting married, which is communally acceptable, unless Joseph publicly uh, shames her for being pregnant. So I just want to say that because all of a sudden, I talked last week, and maybe wrongly so, about how they would bear this public shame. This is even maybe more profound that in their relationship together, Mary and Joseph, this was an internal struggle. Joseph could certainly make it public if he wanted to. Mary probably wouldn't make it public because, I mean, she could die. And so all of a sudden, the dynamic goes from this kind of public disgrace idea to this very tense, very tight Um, relationship burden for them. What am I to do 
with this young woman that I was going to marry. And it's kind of funny because thinking about um, this season of families, I know many of us, many of us carry around burdens that are unspoken, burdens that are very uh, relationally oriented, burdens that are between two people in the room that maybe no one else knows that you're carrying that burden. And the question is, what do you do with that burden? And that's what Joseph's question was for him. What would he do? And what would that mean for Mary? And so now all of a sudden you have someone. So, so this was the argument made by the person who researched this. They said, um, the, the best outcome possible would be if they were to just continue along the path and get married. As a matter of fact, no one outside of their relationship may ever know that Jesus wasn't Joseph's son. That's interesting. But the reality is that we had this um, young woman who was in a very, very difficult situation with her betrothed husband. And let's not forget, of course, God intervened in that relationship. I want to pick it up at verse um, uh, 22 and just a couple verses there. It says this, And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through his prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. We just sang about that, which means God with us. So there's this reality that there's a prophecy, like Dale talked about, that's being fulfilled in this very unconventional way, completely rooted in this familial relationship that Joseph and Mary must choose to have. They must choose to have that relationship. And I want to talk about one more thing, and then we're going to kind of turn our attention to Joseph for a minute, and we're going to look toward the rest of Jesus' family as well. Here's the other thing. Thinking about Christmas, you have an unwed mother, or partially wed mother, I guess. I don't know how you even say that in our culture, you know. But, and you have a divine, sovereign plan of God. And they are actually being coordinated together. And I say that to say, say this. Many times we act as if these are two different things, right? Well, this is what's happening in our life over here. But God has these plans that are over here, and never the two shall meet. But in Mary and Joseph, we actually see this coming together of God's plans and the circumstances that are beyond their control, that is a very tight relational tension for them, that is actually manifesting God's presence, God's purpose in their lives, if only they would listen to him and be obedient in those moments. In the most difficult, trying times, if this husband and this wife this mother and this father would be obedient to God. He would manifest his good purposes for them. We often make like there are two different things, right? Well, God, God isn't in this. Uh, God wouldn't use that. Uh, God wouldn't go to those people. And yet this is the narrative that we hear from Scripture that he did indeed cause his son to be woven together in the, the womb of a young woman pledged and yet not married to a young man. This is God's divine purpose. And this is no new purpose, and so I wanna, I'm going to turn. You don't have to, but I want to turn back to um, Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, because I thought this was really interesting, and I, I just wanted to kind of highlight as we move forward into this conversation about Joseph. See, Joseph was of the house of David, which meant that he had a priestly line, or um, a royal, uh, not priestly, but a royal line, my Bible is falling apart, that, that Jesus was going to be born into. So, so really, like any son, of da any son of Joseph's could be, could be the Messiah that, that was prophesied of David's household. 
okay? But I wanted you to hear this in, in Genesis 3.15. This is what the word says. And I, this is the, the punishment for sin, but it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, okay, you've heard this before, and, and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And we've heard that before, and the other things are cast out of the garden. But, I, but this is what struck me about this, is that what it actually says is that the enemy of God, there will be an... Uh, a disagreement, a perpetual disagreement between, and this is what's interesting, Eve's offspring, or the other way that that's translated in the Bible is Eve's seed, right? The seed of the woman and the deceiver. And I say that because the other times that the seed is mentioned, it's almost always mentioned in referring to the man, Right? That's how you hear Abram's seed. That's how you hear that. It's the lineage, the, the human lineage. But here, in this divine purpose, in this story of a young woman, pleasantly married and yet still a virgin, God used her to pass along this genealogy of the Most High to be a conduit for God's Holy Spirit's purpose in the lives of not just Mary and not just Joseph, but indeed the entire world. And so you have all this kind of prophecy coming together in this moment, this holy moment of relational obedience in this family that I would argue, now, right, far from perfect. I know we've made statues of them, and they're always perfectly dressed, and they have the perfect expressions. But the truth is, they were real people, really struggling. And Jesus came into this very real family in a very real way and brought about the very purposes of God. I want to turn our attention now a little bit to the reality of Jesus' own family through Joseph, who I'm going to say is Jesus' stepfather. That's how I would think of him. Or maybe, another way you say it, is a foster father. Someone who's going to give care for someone that he did not call, you know, participate in bringing about. Right? It was not Joseph's seed that had anything to do with Jesus. It was Mary's. It was the woman's. And so we have this uh, same narrative. I'm going to read it again now, 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, and before they came together, that means before they were intimate, right, um, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit, which we heard from Luke, but we're not going to read that today. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace slash death, right, he had in mind to divorce her quietly, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife because what is conceived of her is from God or is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will, have, will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her, right, until she gave birth to a son. And he gave that son the name Jesus. We have this story of, of Joseph. We talked about it a little bit last week. But I want us to just talk about, again, his decision to stay in this imperfect situation because he believed, he was listening to God and believed and obeying God that God was in that, 
that brokenness, that broken plan that they had. Um, if you think about, I want to read a little bit here in a minute about Joseph's attributes, but if you think about um, Joseph's narrative in the scriptures, this is what's interesting. He's mentioned a lot about this betrothing to Mary, right? He's mentioned in the birth narratives. Um, he's there when his son is, or his, the son of God is born. See, I just said that. But we also know that he was not with her until after Jesus was born, but he was then with her, and there were other children that he did have with Mary. And in the last story we have recorded in the Bible is whenever Jesus is 12 that Joseph's mentioned. And so there's a good chance that, G that Joseph parented Jesus as a small boy up until maybe his teenage years, but when they were at the wedding in, in Cana of Galilee, Joseph isn't there. You remember that story, right? It's Jesus and Mary. Now maybe Jesus, Joseph didn't go. The Bible doesn't say, the Bible doesn't tell us if he was alive or dead. But we hear no more of Joseph's role in Jesus' life. Not directly anyway. Right? Think about it. Whenever Mary and his brothers come to take him home, your mother and brothers are outside. Where is your father? Right? So Joseph was probably not alive when Jesus had his earthly ministry at about the age of 30. And, and that kind of blew me away. So you have a couple more dynamics here, right? One is you have someone who was parenting a child that really as his own that wasn't his. And then secondly, they didn't get to even maybe see him through adulthood. They didn't get to see him all the way, grow up. Probably, fair to say, an imperfect situation to be in. But get this. He is mentioned in Jesus' ministry, indirectly. And it's like this. Jesus of Nazareth? Isn't that Joseph the carpenter's son? Right? They know his background. They know the man that raised. This is just Joseph's son, right? Again, attesting to two things. One, it was never shared outside of the marriage, maybe, that Jesus didn't belong to Joseph. And two, that, that, jo that Jesus was known as being the carpenter's son. That he was raised in that tradesmanship. As a matter of fact, the idea, the imagery we have of Jesus as the carpenter is because he was raised in the household of his foster or stepfather, Joseph. And that's the trade you took. The carpenter's son. There was a, um, a, a blog article I just wanted to read quickly through these. Um, Katiana, I think is how you say her name. I couldn't get her last name. It wasn't on there. But she did some just thinking on Scripture about this, and I thought it was so powerful, and I didn't want to take credit for it. I just think it's really, really good. But there's 16 qualities that are demonstrating through Joseph's life and action that we could all learn from and, and how we could live as fa families ourselves, husbands and wives, but in this case, husbands, in Joseph's case. The verse is this. Joseph was betrothed to Mary, and we know the kind of Mary, the woman that Mary was. She was worthy to be the, the mother of Jesus Christ. But Joseph was allowed to marry Mary. And God saw fit to let Joseph raise his son because Joseph was a good parent. Um, Joseph didn't react to Mary's pregnancy in a negative way. He didn't rush to have her stoned to death. Instead, he was thoughtful, kind, level-headed. His response enabled him uh, to be receptive to the Spirit and to listen to God who then allowed Mary to bear his son. Joseph was a just man. The Bible says to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Three, Joseph received revelation on several occasions. He saw an angel that announced Christ, and then later on he was directed to flee Egypt. We'll talk about that, right? And he obeyed that as well. And then even return. Joseph was a spiritual man. Joseph knew the prophecy was given in Isaiah that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, and so he knew scriptures because Joseph was knowledgeable. 
He knew the prophets, um, yeah, uh, Joseph was not only prompted by the Spirit, but faithfully did what he was instructed because, and this one's obvious, Joseph was obedient <laughs> to God as a father. Whenever God said to do something, Joseph would do it. He defended Mary's purity by marrying her, and he didn't consummate the marriage until after Christ was born because he was a virtuous man. He could have certainly done that by right, but he did not. Joseph righteously presided in his family. He was protected. He protected them and provided for them. He took his responsibility as the patriarch seriously because he was honorable as the appointed head of the household. Joseph didn't dawdle or waste time when he saw revelation. You see this in the scripture. He's quick to obedience. Like, then Joseph did it. <laughs> then Joseph fled. Then Joseph returned. Joseph saw an angel announce the birth of the Savior, and he also received other, other revelation and dreams because he was a man who was visionary. He could see things that God was doing in his life. When warned to flee Egypt and go back to Judea, he was afraid there was a wicked ruler, and yet he believed in God's instruction and therefore obeyed God because Joseph ultimately trusted in the Lord. He traveled to Bethlehem at the time of census to David's household because he was of royal heritage. We talked about that already. There was no room when he went to Bethlehem. Now this is interesting. There was no room. We hear that story right. No room at the end. Uh, looking for a place to stay despite the fact that he was part of the royal household and that means that in his own people he had no social status. He was just coming back for the registry. He didn't pull any, couldn't pull any strings to get a place. Joseph aided in and was uh, as far as we know, the only other human witness of the Savior's birth. There's no other person recorded as being present whenever Jesus is born. Might have happened, but there's no recording of it. <clears throat> I, by the way, I just want to say this. Mad respect to Joseph. <laughs> and maybe it was more common then. I don't know. Um, but mad respect because he was there um, whenever his son, or when God's son was born. So Joseph was trusted by God to do a big work there. Three more. Joseph raised uh, Christ. In the knowledge of the gospel, he was circumcised and given the name Jesus um, at the temple. He was taken into the temple on the eighth day and circumcised. And he taught his other children to do the same because he was a covenant-keeping man. He knew of Christ's original or, uh, miraculous origin, but he w witnessed Simeon's prophecy and he marveled at it. Just like Mary stored up in her heart, it said both the mother and father were amazed. They marveled at this prophecy. He was a witness to Jesus' life. And then he kept his covenants despite the difficulty. He traveled about 70 to 90 miles to get to the temple every time because Joseph was a worshiper of God, first and foremost, right? He was worshiping God. And I thought that was really interesting to kind of think about all the ways, the faithful attributes of God that we could maybe do well to pay attention to. All right, so now we want to flip ahead into chapter 2 of, of um, I think I still am in the same spot here, chapter 2 of Matthew again. And this is going to be, um, the reality of Jesus' family, that Jesus is the baby that nobody wanted. I'm going to be careful here, right? But the baby that nobody wanted, or at least came at the wrong time, right? And this is going to be Matthew uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. It says, when they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, get up and take this child and his mother and escape to Egypt. And stay there until I tell you. This is why, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Actually, it's funny because in the blast-off video, Chris mentioned that great passage where it says um, the, the wise men are going to worship Jesus, and Herod says, um, oh, tell me where he's going to be because I want to worship him too. But the truth of the scripture is that Herod was actually threatened by Jesus. 
He was afraid of Jesus' rule, and he wanted to end it. So much so that we, we hear this story. Look at verse 14. So Joseph got up, and he took the child and his mother during the night, and he fled to Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled the prophecy that the Lord had said, Out of Egypt I will call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, the wise men, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in his vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. When it was said uh, through the prophet, then what was said through the prophet was fulfilled, Jeremiah, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. There was so much this uh, hatred for Jesus and his birth that many, many children were killed as he fled. 19, after Herod uh, had died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and, and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel um, for those who were trying to take the child's life are now dead. And so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and went back to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Arch Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he then withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went to live in a town called Nazareth. And so it was fulfilled that the prophets, what the prophets said, that he will be called a Nazarene, Jesus the Nazarene. And so you have this child that kind of spent his life on the run. Um, he wasn't warmly welcomed. We have this idea that the shepherds were there. They were. We have this idea that the Magi came. They did. But then his young, uh, his young childhood years was his family trying to protect him from a world that did not want him. He was certainly, could be said, born at the wrong time. Not just the, the birth into the manger, that narrative, but the birth into a violent leader who would have him killed. The birth into a time whenever there's someone that's ruling that has so much authority in the world, they're going to do a, consent, a census of the entire population to find out who is who. This is Jesus' um, birthright he's born into. All right, now we're going to, and we're going to talk about one more thing and we're moving to these kind of a principles of Jesus' own ministry. I think it's totally different than we expect. Um, the Gospel of John we're going to look at now and talk about the siblings of Jesus just for a minute. His siblings that came after him. John chapter 7, if you want to turn there. John 7, verses 3 through 8. And I am at the wrong place. One second. Okay. So after all Jesus' disciples began to leave him, in verse 3, this is what's recorded. Jesus' brothers said to him, so this is his brothers, his biological siblings talking to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles that you are doing. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And this is the verse, verse 5, because even his own brothers did not believe in him. I want to read a little more, and then we're going to just talk about that reality. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come, because for you any time is right. But the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify, now listen, that what the world is doing is evil. And then he sends his brothers onto the feast without him, right? His brothers are like, listen, Jesus, if all this is true, if all these miracles, all the stuff you're doing is true, if, you know, then go ahead and prove yourself. Go to Judea and prove it at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Demonstrate your power. Become a public leader, a public figure. And what we know that they didn't know at the time is that Jesus knew that if he were to go to Judea at that time, he would be killed. If he went and made a public stand, he would be killed. We also know he wasn't afraid of dying, but he knew his time had not yet come. But 
here's the reality. You got Mary and Joseph who have this son that they've kept. Who knows if his brothers even knew about the birth narrative? Maybe. I mean, you think, would you tell that story to your kids? Would you tell them about the fleeing, all the babies who died because of your brother? And here, maybe they're just sick of it. They're like, Jesus, if you're who you say you are, go prove it. They, they don't see the real risk for him. But the, the gospel of John says that the fundamental reason that they say it is because they don't believe in him. They don't believe in Jesus. So you have Jesus in a household, the perfect family, right? Where his siblings don't believe him. His, his dad, his earthly dad's probably passed away. And he has his mom, right? And all the pressure of the world. This is the reality of Jesus' life. And I just think it's, and, and I know we're way, way beyond the birth narrative, but I think it's unfair, and it's unfair to put it on us that we ought not to walk in a burdened way. We ought not to wrestle with real things because this is the truth of who Jesus is. And this is his life. His siblings didn't believe him. So here's the issue. Why would I bring this up at Christmas? Why? <laughs> you know, because the perfect family can be an idol that we worship. Listen, being a perfect family can become the paramount thing for us and cause us to do all kind of bad, um, wicked even, evil, sinful things because we want to pretend to be a perfect family. Those portraits we saw earlier, I get it. There are moments where that happy, but no one's that happy all the time. Nothing is that perfect. Airbrushing photos, getting rid of all the warts and, and wrinkles, getting rid of the realness, the humanity that we live in, being dishonest before God so that we might elevate ourselves to a position that does not exist. Oh, listen, the enemy will use it in our lives. Let's not make our families an idol. Something even a little um, tougher uh, to talk about is in the Gospel of Matthew, again, chapter 10. And I think I have just the, yeah, the page number up there. You can turn there if you want. Um, and in a moment, there I think will be a verse up there from Matthew 10. But this is what Jesus himself said about um, family, which I do want to talk about for a minute because, you know, is it an issue that our families would be an idol in our lives? Is it an issue that we want to walk through this Christmas season and believe that we must be perfect and everything must be perfect? Chapter 10, verse 34 through 37. This is Jesus teaching, and he says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I know he'll be prince of peace, right? But here, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on this earth. I did not to get come to bring peace, but a sword, because I've come to, and there's a quote, turn, quote, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his very own household. What? This is Jesus, the promised Savior. Don't suppose I come to bring peace in this life. I came to bring um, a sword. Look at verse 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Listen, anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 38, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And you can read all around that all you want. But there's this idea that I, idol raising our families to a level of idolatry is an offense to God. I want to actually turn back to where that quote comes from because that got me curious. Doesn't it get you curious when you see Jesus say that? That seems so un-Christmas-like to say that. What do you mean you didn't come to bring peace? You're the prince of peace. That quote comes from the book of Micah, chapter 7. I'm going to read a few verses 
verse 2, and then verses 5 through 7. This is what the testimony of Micah is. The godly have been swept from the land. There is no one upright who remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood of others. Each one hunts down his brothers with a net. And then verse 5. Do not trust in a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, that's the woman that you're, you love so much, right? The one that's in your arms. Be careful of your words because a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law rises against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are members of his own household. That's the quote. I, I came to bring a sword into households. Why? He's referring to the, the wickedness exist, the sin, the brokenness, the shame, all the ways we fall short. But here's why it's good to go find where it came from. Verse 7, but as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior, because He will hear me. Maybe you're like me when I first read that passage in Matthew, I thought, Oh my goodness, Jesus came to destroy families. That's not what it's saying at all. It's saying he came to save families. But his salvation will bring about divisions in your life. It will separate one from another. It will, dis, you know, it will, it will make us different from others. Um, you know. and, and so this idea that, um, that Jesus is doing redemptive work in our families. As for me, I will fix my eyes on the Lord and I will find my hope in God, my Savior, even in the midst of a family that is fighting like that, even in the midst of a family that's broken like that. I will only find my hope in the Lord. This is the testimony that we have. In the Gospel of Luke now, Jesus turns another conversation on its head with the idea of family. Let's see if I can pull this slide. Yeah, Luke 18. This is Jesus continuing to teach in his ministry about families. And he's talking about salvation. And listen, he's talking about how difficult salvation is. And in 1826, this is what the word says. Those who heard that, that's his disciples, those who followed him said, well, who can be saved? This is when Jesus said, it's, it's almost impossible for a rich man to be saved. Well, then who can be saved, he says. And Jesus says this, great quote, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And then Peter said this, which is an interesting response. Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Like, we have done that. Remember the call? We've walked away from our parents and our businesses and our lives, and we're, we're following you. We've left everything. And Jesus says this, and this is good news. I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. And that is to say this. God is bringing about a righteousness in our households. And it will be hard at times. But the truth is that God is building a new family. And not a new family that's going to compete with your biological family. That's not his hope. His hope is redemption for your family. But the truth is that in Christ and in his blood, we're included in a new family. And it says not only a new family for eternity, we know that, this promise that we have of eternal life, but this new family right here, right now on this earth. I will give you, you will receive um, many times more brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in this age, in this time. Oh, and eternal life. You will be blessed when you're part 
of my family. And I think we couldn't talk about this idea of our families without talking about the reality of Jesus' new family. As a matter of fact, I want to share one more verse. It comes from Mark, which we've been studying, right? And we've heard this before just a few weeks ago, but I wanted to just hear this. Um, then he looked at those seated around the circle. This is whenever Mary and, and his brothers came and said, let's take you home, you've lost your mind. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is constituting a new family, a family who are obedient to God. And I want to say, and I've, I've read that before, and I've kind of taken that and I've said, oh, Jesus didn't respect his parents. Well, that's not true. We know he honored his parents. Matter of fact, on, on the cross, on the cross, he was making arrangements for his mother to be cared for. He never stopped honoring Mary. But here it is. Listen, he did not believe that Mary or his siblings or Joseph or anyone else had a stature that was higher than anyone in the kingdom of God because they were all God's family. You see, it isn't about um, putting our family down. And hear me, some religions will do this. Cut off your relationship with your family and friends. That's not what we're talking about. It's saying that there is a new game. And the game is that we are all family in Christ. And that, that we will not falsely elevate a false image, a perfection of family in this life. As if it's more important than the ultimate family of God. And that is good news, because it's good news not just because we can be part of the family of God, but it means we get to invite others who feel far from God into the family of God as if they were our own mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. We get to include them in the kingdom of God. And then listen, we get to live in our families in all the toughness. And I'm not trying to put that on you, but all the, the parts that, you know, just feels, oh, I'm carrying this burden. You get to invite Jesus into that part of our lives and include them in the gospel message of mercy and of grace and of hope. Whenever the perfect picture doesn't come out, we get to say, yes, but Jesus died to forgive our sins. And we get to proclaim the gospel over and over again for those who fall short, which is all of us. Now, that is what the season is about. It's for family. It's to be with family. To proclaim the good news of Christ repeatedly in our households, in our neighborhoods, and in our jobs. To continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Not falsely elevating our own desire for status or perfection. Not to falsely demand it of those who we love the most. So I wonder, do you see yourself as part of God's family in that way? Do you see that? Do you see yourselves as a member of God's family first and his redemption story being caught up in the narrative of where he's placed you in your life? I have three things I want to encourage you to think about this holiday season. Some things that we can do practically as believers in Jesus. If you're believing in Jesus, I'm not assuming that you are, but if you're believing in Jesus, some three practical things we can do. And the first is that we can pray for our family. We can pray for them. And not just pray for them when it's all going wrong. Pray for them when it's all going right. <laughs> you know, pray, pray, for your, pray for your husband or your wife. Pray for your children. Pray for your parents. Pray, pray when everything's perfect. Pray when everything's terrible. Pray for your families. And as part of your prayer, if God brings to mind things, that, that the sins that you own in that, repent of your sin. Repent. 
Oftentimes in prayer, we're talking to the Lord about what's going on. He's, I want, bro, God, I just want this relationship fixed. I just, I just want this relationship healed. He'll bring about some truth in your spirit that you know the ways that you have failed. And you say, oh, well, how can I go and admit that to someone? But guess what? Repent. Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Be a Christian who believes the gospel. That's one. Pray and repent when you see your sin. Pray for others. Two, invite others to be included in the family of God. Yeah, guess what? The gospel is for you. Be that person. I don't care what is going on in their lives. Be that person that says to them, yeah, it's tough. The gospel's for you. Yeah, it's great. The gospel's for you. And I'm talking about myself here too. We all need to learn to do that, right? To continue to offer the invitation to be included in this great story. I mean, we have Christmas, man, and we have this community talking, but we talk down to people instead of talking with them, you know, like, yeah, no, the gospel's for you. This is your family. It's much bigger than these things we make it to be. And don't just invite people to be part of the family of God abstractly. Invite them into your family. Make a seat at your table. Open your house up to someone who's far from God. I know it's the hardest thing in the world. You go, what, what? No, this is Thanksgiving, or this is Christmas, or this is, our, this is our time. But, you know, do we have room at a table? Can we do that? Can we just say, hey, you know what? We've got a seat. You've got nowhere to go. Come hang out with us today. Come, come celebrate the birth of Jesus. Or, or, or we'll come to you, and we'll celebrate with you. Make room in your own family as well as we invite others into the family of God. And the third thing, uh, choose, just like Micah, to fix your eyes on Christ and make him supreme. Make it truly about Jesus and let him rule supremely over every relationship in your life, whether it's your mother or your father, your wife, your husband, your children, your boss, your co-workers, your subordinates, your fellow students. Let Jesus reign supreme in the relationships and continue to talk to him about what's going on in those relationships. Let him rule. Trust him in his sovereignty. Indeed, trust him for his salvation that only he can bring. A simple way of saying that is let God be God and you be you. This is what we see witnessed in the life of the first family of Christmas. People who ultimately look to the Lord all the time to see what he's doing instead of what they are. I want us to pray for a minute and then um, I want to give you a heads up. We're going to offer communion together. We're going to celebrate communion together this morning. But I want to pray just for what God's maybe already done today and, and if something in your life. Um, so join with me in prayer. Uh, Father God, for your word, we give you thanks and praise for your holy presence, which is not deterred by circumstance or opportunity, that, that you come to us all the time. And uh, Father, I believe not just here on Sundays in certain buildings and certain places, but you are always speaking to your people. You're always calling us home. You're always including us in your kingdom narrative. And Father, for that, we give you thanks and praise. I pray, Father God, for brothers and sisters here who maybe hear that, you know, they're, they don't think that that includes them. They just don't. Father, would you break through in their lives in a real way? Right now, maybe, whatever they have in their heart, they say, I, I need you to, you know, if God is real, I need God to do this. God, would you do that, that they might come to know you in a saving way? They may come to believe in you with all their heart and all their mind and all their strength. Father, would you draw them near? We know, we know we are hopelessly lost without you. And we are utterly dependent on you to do it. We also know we don't need to beg. We love to do it. We love your children. Father, would you break through in their lives today in a real way? 
Father, for all the stuff that's stirred up, maybe some relationships have come to mind, maybe some hurts or some things, maybe some things that have even been separated by death. Would, would you have your Holy Spirit work in those areas of our lives that we would repent, that we would confess, that we would believe, that we'd have hope, that we would continue to live in that place of hope, that you are going before us and you are good and you have good things for us. Would you bring about reconciliation and restoration and healing? Oh, would you give us courage? Give us courage to be your people, boldly, unashamed, loving and inviting others, including others, confessing our failures, being real. Oh, we'd rather be real than perfect. Help us to be real. Love you so much. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus that you gave your son, ultimately brought Christmas so that you might put him on a cross and we might be forgiven and set free took your son back to heaven with you that you might send the Holy Spirit to be with us and help us live an abundant life now and find our place in your family here. Do that work, Father. Help us to see the work that you're doing that we might ever praise you and worship you and glorify you because you're worthy. I love you so much. We thank you. There's so many more things, Father. It's just time. There's so many more things you deserve from us. Help us to leave this place glorifying you, pondering your beauty, proclaiming your goodness, and being honest with ourselves and others and you. May you be glorified. We love you so much. We thank you for the time and your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.